Head on golf today from winning Ryder Cup captain to the 18th tower. Former world number one Luke Donald getting ready for his broadcasting debut with NBC this week at the Cognizant Classic. How's he going to juggle a TV career along with trying to win a Road Ryder Cup next year at Bethpage? The answer coming up as golf today starts right now. Golf today. Hey, hey, happy Tuesday. Welcome into this hour long edition of Golf Today. I'm George Savarikis sitting alongside Eamon Lynch here with you inside our Golf Channel Worldwide headquarters. Eamon, uh, we now shift the focus to the Florida swing on the PGA Tour schedule. If you look at the different swings or periods of the schedule throughout the year, they seem to take on their own personality. So, what would you say the personality is when we? Uh, turn our attention to Florida. Well, in recent years, it's definitely seemed as though we moved to Florida in search of better weather. And let's hope that's also the case this year as well, George. But it also is this time of the year where the, the broader politics tend to quicken its pace as well in this game as well. We're into policy board meeting season on the PGA Tour as well. Yeah, 100%. And not to be the bearer of bad news, but I had read on Twitter, so of course it's got to be true, that this has been the cloudiest winter into early start of the year that Florida's had in 88 years. So hopefully the cloud coverage breaks this week for the Cognizant Classic. As I mentioned, the PGA Tour beginning its Florida swing this week at PGA National. You can catch live first round coverage Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern time right here on Golf Channel. And just last month, you remember the PGA Tour announcing that multi-billion dollar investment deal with the Strategic Sports Group. It's a collection of high-profile investors with experience in capital markets and sports. The deal included an initial investment of $1.5 billion and up to $3 billion total in the future for the PGA Tour. The deal includes the launch of PGA Tour Enterprises, a new for-profit entity where SSG will be a minority investor. For more, let's welcome in Kira K. Dixon from PGA National. Kira. There was a policy board meeting yesterday on site at the Cognizant Classic. What was your takeaway from the meeting? Yeah, George, as Eamon just mentioned, Florida certainly means that the politics of the PGA Tour are coming more to the forefront. So yesterday, the PGA Tour's policy board met on site here at PGA National from about 1 to about 7.45 in the evening. Now, Jay Monahan did meet with Yasser Al-Ramayan, the governor of the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, a few weeks ago. But there was no Saudi presence or PIF investment or PIF uh, presence in yesterday's meeting. Now, in terms of the content, they discussed plenty of the continued unanswered questions that we often hear about. Uh, uh, the player that I spoke to that was in the meeting, a member of the PGA Tour Policy Board, said that it is a great time to be a professional golfer in, in the climate that we have today, uh, but especially for those at the highest levels of the game and their priorities continue to be to get the best players together as often as possible. And another priority is trying to alleviate the constant drama and distraction that comes with the conversations that we've been having about the public investment fund and live golf and the fact that that very much affects the PGA Tours product day in and day out and the product that the fan then consumes. Um, in terms of timing, they're looking at hopefully having a resolution by the end of the year. Uh, but there's plenty of division, George, that still remains when it comes to the subject of what to do with Live Golf. 
Alrighty, Kira. So definitely that important kernel there in Kira's report. They're saying timing potentially at the end of the year. We're going to dive into this in just a second, Eamon. Let's welcome in GolfChannel.com senior writer Rex Hoggard. Rex, what's your reaction to what came out of yesterday's meeting? I think we've started to hear this over the last few weeks. I mean, I think there was a level of optimism from people inside the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour that maybe a deal with the public investment fund could get completed by the time they get to the Masters. I think when Keith Pelley announced that he was stepping down, he actually voiced the idea that he'd like to see something done before they got to the Masters and when he was going to step down as CEO of the DP World Tour. That seems undoable right now. And I think you get a glimpse. I think everyone, including the policy board after yesterday's marathon meeting, is getting an idea of how complicated this is going to be. And when I talk to people who have been involved with similar multi-billion dollar deals, they point out that, look, there's a lot of complexities and a lot of nuances when it comes to these types of deals. But what is going to make this one even more difficult is you're starting to deal with competing interest and competing motivations here. I think we just talked about this yesterday. The idea that John Rahm told ESPN that he hasn't spoken with Tiger Woods since he joined Live Golf. And part of the component, if there is going to be a deal between the Public Investment Fund and the PGA Tour, is going to be welcoming those players back who joined Live Golf into the PGA Tour. And that's a really good indication that that's not on the horizon anytime soon. Rex, when you hear the timeline being the end of the year, and when the deal was kind of first announced June 6th of last year, I had people telling me uh, summer of 24, end of 24, is more realistic than the end of 23. Do you view this updated timeline in any way as a setback or is it more indicative of the complexities and the multiple stakeholders involved to try and get this deal uh, to come to fruition? I think your friends are absolutely right. This is all about being realistic about what you can do in that time frame. I was told by people internally at the PGA Tour that when they first announced the framework agreement and came up with that December 31st deadline, that was really just to get everyone marching in the same direction. They said it was just they didn't have realistic expectations that they would have some sort of completed deal by then, but they wanted to make sure everyone was sort of driving towards the same goal. I think you're right. The end of this year is probably a much better scenario because you can work out all of these details and as I just pointed out bringing the live players back how are you going to create whatever PGA Tour Enterprises is going to be how are the players who left uh, who stayed loyal to the PGA Tour going to be compensated I think all of these things need time to work out he is golfchannel.com senior writer Rex Hoggard Eamon let's open the floor now uh, to you you've heard what Kira and Rex had to share if you take a 10,000 foot view at where things stand right now what's your take I don't think there's any surprises in the timeline being adjusted here as well. And Rex and Kira are right in terms of the gnarly, more personal issues, I suppose, the more granular issues in terms of how players come back, what does it look like on the ground. The people I've talked to in the last few weeks suggest that the, the stumbling block and the time-consuming part of this is who makes decisions, who is authorised and empowered to make decisions on the PIF side of things in terms of those gnarly questions. And I don't believe, based on those conversations, that that person has been yet identified. I don't think anyone believes the financials are going to be a huge problem in this because in a lot of ways the financials have already been done. It's very close to a mirror image in some ways of the deal that we saw with the strategic sports group uh, that includes a lot of the Fenway guys from Boston. I do think there are complicated issues here, even outside of golf that are going to be potentially problematic. You're talking about a regulatory scrutiny from the government. You're talking about all of these situations that 
the PGA Tour has no control over. I mean, the Public Investment Fund is currently ignoring subpoenas from congressional inquiries in other areas, threatening to jail its own advisors in America who worked for them if they do comply with those subpoenas. The conflict in the Middle East, there are any number of things that could delay and rattle this process. So I, I do think you're looking at probably well into 2025 before you actually start to get a vision of what this solution would look like in the ground, much less seeing it in the ground. Uh, assuming this moves forward on a trajectory where the public investment fund is able to come in with the PGA Tour and SSG Group, at what point could golf fans think, okay, we have a level of stabilization, now we understand what the future could look like? Is that the multi-billion dollar question <laughs> at this point, George? I, I, it would seem very clear that if you're, if you're talking about being into 25 before there's agreement reached on the broad strokes, in terms of what a resolved, peaceful golf landscape would look like, you've probably got to realistically be looking at at least 2027 by then. So if John Ram left a few months ago thinking that he was going to be back with his pockets full in a few months, I think he's delusional. I think there are going to be parallel tours running for quite some time. So if that's what John Ram left on that basis, then he was sold a bill of goods. There are a lot of thorny issues here, and those thorny issues aren't going to be resolved anytime soon, which is also makes Taylor Gooch's quotes to Australian Golf Digest quite interesting that we saw come out this morning as well. And this is what Taylor Gooch had to say. He said, if Rory McIlroy goes and completes his career Grand Slam without some of the best players in the world, there's just going to be an asterisk. It's just reality. I think everyone Everybody wins whenever the majors figure out a way to get the best players in the world there. And it's, it's interesting coming from Taylor, George, in the sense that Taylor wasn't eligible for the US Open last summer. He declined to enter qualifying to, to make his way into the field. So I guess having taken a handout from the Saudis, he wanted one from the USGA as well. But there is no, no one who qualifies as a best player in the world who is not in the field at Augusta National this month. What Taylor Gooch really means is that Taylor Gooch isn't in the field. And frankly, there isn't a single event on the planet that is diminished by the absence of Taylor Gooch, except possibly the member guest at his home course. How can you say there isn't a single event for either Taylor Gooch or some of the, quote, top live talent, where if you look at other ranking metrics out there, aside from the official world golf rankings, have them playing among, call it, top 50, top 60. Yeah, you look world. at those, they're all in the field at Augusta National. There is, you, if you go down even the data golf rankings that Greg Norman likes to throw around as well, Bo Hustler is the top guy in that field who would not be eligible for Augusta. No one who qualifies as a best player is not in the field at Augusta National. This is just nonsense that, that Taylor's putting out there. And if you're going to use that asterisk argument, okay, well, is every Open champion pre-Arnold Palmer going in 1960 because the best players in the world really didn't qualify or to bother to play the Open at that stage as well. I, I think once you get into this idea that the best players are somehow being excluded, they're not right now. They're, they have eligibility. He's talking specifically the Masters being diminished in April. Uh, if somebody wins and the best players in the world aren't there, the best players are there. I would say there's some credence to his overall messaging where I don't think if you look at not just the Masters, but beyond that, PGA Championship, U.S. Open, yeah. the Open, with the current qualification criteria and the diminished numbers of live golfers from 2022 to where we're at now, that, yeah, it's not necessarily the best indication if your goal is to get the best 156 yeah. players or best 90. You're not necessarily fulfilling that obligation, but 
the majors have their own criteria, so it's not always the goal is to get the best 156 players. You're getting a snapshot of some of the best players along with secondary criteria. But if you look at golf historically, I mean, black players weren't allowed at the Masters until 1975. So you could look at some of the exclusionary policies prior to that and say, okay, well, there is a bit of an asterisk because it wasn't opened up to necessarily the best golfers in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s until the mid-70s and going forward. Same with the PGA Tour and their Caucasian-only policy until 1961. You look at it with baseball and Babe Ruth, it's like, well, okay, he only played against white players until Jackie Robinson in 1947. Very different than what we're seeing with live golfers now, but I think anecdotally you look at different policies and say, okay, there could be an asterisk, but it's not what the average golfer thinks long-term I would say. No, it's, it's very different to be excluded on, on those bases versus guys who chose to take themselves out of the process 100%. and then want the rules rewritten when they get there. It's not a problem now. At some point, the majors may decide that they need a carve-out for a live order of merit winner. That day is not here just yet. Well, there's a new face in the booth this week at the Cognizant Classic, but a familiar one nonetheless. Luke Donald is in the chair for NBC Sports. The last time he got this much face time, he was crushing American dreams as Europe's Ryder Cup captain. Skipper joins us right after this short break. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Golf Central Update, brought to you by Callaway Golf. Welcome back to Golf Today. A look at the upcoming PGA Tour schedule with a heavy emphasis on the Sunshine State. Starts with the Cognizant Classic in the Palm Beaches. Then it's the Arnold Palmer Invitational. Also that week, the Puerto Rico Open. Then we have the crown jewel of the PGA Tour schedule. The players, March 14th through 17th, and the Valspar Championship closes out our four-week jaunt through the state of Florida. Let's flash back to the 2006 Cognizant Classic. It was held across the street from PGA National at Mirasol Country Club. Luke Donald held off Jeff Ogilvie by two strokes for his second career PGA Tour victory. It was his first win since 2002. Time now for a past champions chat as we welcome in Luke Donald, who will also be serving as a lead analyst for NBC on this week's coverage in South Florida. Luke, thanks for joining us. I'm curious when you look back at that victory in 2006, that was your second on tour. There were another three after that, but that was the early days of the power era that's kind of really overtaken professional elite golf. Did you have a sense even then that the number of venues was diminishing on tour where a guy with your strengths could expect to compete week in and week out? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, obviously, I, I grew up uh, 
uh, coming out on tour. 2002 was my first year. Obviously, Tiger had been uh, very, very dominant uh, for for a number of years, um, and showed that you know hitting the ball very far um, and doing a lot of other things well, obviously was was a great recipe for success. In 2006, yeah, I was thinking about how I could uh, hit the ball further. I, I tried to do that a little bit for the next couple of years. In 2008, at the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, I injured myself. You know, I, I hurt my wrist. I was out of the game for six months, uh, probably a little bit through trying to hit the ball too far. Um, and at that point, after an injury and a, a real setback, then then I kind of took stock of, you know, how I could be the best version of myself without, you know, injuring myself further. So I, I ended up going a different route um, by, by trying to work from the hole backwards, um, being the best putter, best short game player, best wedge player I could be, and um, doing it that way. But it's it's certainly not the easiest way to do it, and uh, that's obviously what made me very proud that, that I was still able to get to num world number one in a, in a game that is really, uh, you know, influenced a lot by the power players. Yeah, it led you to some amazing heights like you touched on. Luke, you have so much on your plate now. You're still obviously playing professional golf. You're once again reprising your role as European Ryder Cup captain, myriad business interests outside the ropes and off the course. Why take on broadcasting now? <laughs> it, it's something I uh, I did uh, back in 2018. Um, I did a couple stints. I did the U.S. Open at Shinnecock. I did uh, the, the, the BMW PGA at Wentworth. <laughs> For Sky Sports, um, I was out with a back injury. Kind of enjoyed that uh, side of it a little bit, and this was an opportunity. NBC came to me and said that you know they're looking for potential people down the road to to fulfill uh, you know the lead analyst job, and I was certainly on their radar. So I think it was a great opportunity for to try out for a couple of weeks um, to see uh, if I was any good at it, to see if I liked it, to see if they thought I was any good at it so um you know we'll see it's uh certainly a little bit different for me I've, I've done a little bit in the past but really very little so uh i'm excited for these next two weeks to to call a little goal as i said uh, hopefully this is a little bit less stressful than actually having to play the bear trap this week do you worry about upsetting players with your commentary luke because with all due respect you tour players are a little bit overly sensitive to criticism at times <laughs> Um, hopefully people, you know, the players have thick enough skin, you know, I think as long as it's done in a constructive way, um, you know, certainly I think that's part of a, an analyst's role is to, uh, you know, obviously be critical and see where, where they've gone wrong and, and comment on that, but also understand as a player that's still playing that this game is very difficult. So, you know, again, I'm not going to be overly critical, but, uh, you know, when, when the time uh, calls for it, then, uh, yeah, if I see a mistake in a technique or things that I think they could do different to maybe improve, hopefully they'll see that as constructive criticism rather than uh, taking it the wrong way. Luke, you've been around this game a long time. Who are the voices that you've listened to either over in Europe or here stateside in the U.S. that you either uh, aligned with or felt like they're, they're voices that you could take something from as you look to chart your <laughs> own course in the analyst role? Yeah, I mean, there's so many great announcers in golf and Jim Nance and Dan <laughs> Hicks. I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to be sitting next to him this week. Uh, people that have so much uh, experience, Nick Fowder. I've talked to a few guys leading up in the last few weeks, Trevor Immelman, Mike Tirico. 
um, you know, just trying to gleam a little bit from them uh, as I take this, uh, you know, this little step for the next two weeks. Uh, you know, uh, this is a, the same thing I did, you know, with my captaincy in the Ryder Cup. Try and talk to as many people as I can, just glean little bits, what I think is going to be helpful, what I think is interesting, and then just put myself out there and see, see how I do. Speaking of that Ryder Cup captaincy, Luke, it's a very gentle flex with the six Ryder Cups on the shelf behind you right there. I'm, I'm curious what your takeaway from Rome is. The question... There's one more, one more in the trophy cabinet here, but that's, that's the real one. So there is seven. Well, that's sending a message to whoever you're going up against at Bethpage in two years right away. There's a question that we never ask winners that I'm curious about coming out of Rome. What was your biggest regret at Rome? Something you thought you didn't do as well as you might have and that you intend to rectify that heading to Bethpage next year? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I, I think the preparation uh, went went well, and obviously the start we got off to was was the dream start. And you know, from then on, you know, our chances were certainly were very much elevated after that first morning. Um, the singles, I I, uh, I struggled a little bit just knowing exactly where to go and exactly how to talk to the players. You know, it's a fine line between getting in the way of um, that that them and their caddies because they, they know each other so well and what to say. But there were times where I felt like some of the players had their heads down a little bit and I could have gone up to them and and maybe uh, encouraged them a little bit more and got them back uh, you know, on the on the right path. I think that that is the role of the caddy. So I didn't want to overstep my mark, but uh, I think I could have done a little bit better job, uh, certainly on, on Sunday. The, there, there are some serious rumblings that you're going to go up against Tiger Woods as the captain at Bethpage next year. Would that in any way intimidate you? Would it impact how you choose to do the job going into that Ryder Cup? No, not at all. Uh, obviously, I'd be delighted to go up against Tiger. I think uh, I have the most utmost respect. He's the guy that uh, we all looked up to uh, in terms of what he did on the golf course. I mean, just the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest player uh, to ever play and you know, got to play against him uh, a few times in Ryder Cups. Um, but, uh, no, I think, you know, my job is, is totally separate to what he's doing. You know, I can't control, again, how he, he goes about his job. But I know, uh, obviously, having done this for 14 months, uh, what, what is required. And uh, there'll be different challenges this year, being, being away and, and being at Bethpage, uh, you know, in that kind of hostile environment. So, um, again, it's really more about me concentrating on, on what I can do to give my guys the best opportunity and not worrying about what, what Team USA is doing. Luke, touching on giving your team the best opportunity to try and win at Bethpage, and you're going to be asked this a ton leading up to next year. There's only been um, one road team to win the Ryder Cup for the last 15-plus years. I mean, it's one of the hardest things to do in just all of sport. It's almost like a team winning on the road against a top-10 football team in college football, how rare it has been in recent memory. Um, from a mentality standpoint, what conversations will you have with your guys that could maybe include people in either other sports or other disciplines to help them just from a psyche standpoint have the right mindset going into that undertaking? Yeah, certainly I've, the things I've been thinking about the last uh, month or two since since taking on this role again, you know, I think that's that's the big advantage we had in Rome was the, the home support and that's suddenly now a big disadvantage. So how do you how do you turn that around? How do you somehow um, you know, how do you how do you get stronger with with such a hostile crowd against you and 
you know, that that does mean uh, talking to, you know, other sports, other people who have done very well from away matches, um, you know, just doing my research and then figuring out, you know, which players thrive in those kind of conditions. And, you know, maybe maybe when it comes down to my picks, uh, you know, uh, that uh, I'll be thinking about some of that stuff, you know, their the personality matchups and, and how they thrive in those very, very difficult situations. Well, Luke, uh, we're both looking forward to seeing you in the booth this week. Thanks for joining us here on Golf Today and enjoy uh, being in the uh, 18th Tower at the Cognizant Classic. <laughs> I will. Thank you, guys. Here's how you can watch this week's event. Starts Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern on Golf Channel and Peacock. Same story for Friday on into the weekend. It goes from Golf Channel 1 Eastern over to NBC at 3 Eastern. And we'll prize that for Sunday's final round from PGA National. Get to see the best in the game. Handle that bear trap. More golf today coming up. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Today we're taking a moment to remember our good friend and colleague here at Golf Channel, the late Tim Rosefort. It was in 2021, the Cognizant Classic Tournament recognizes Rosie for his three decades plus of service to the game in the Palm Beach community, which was his home. By renaming the Media Center PGA National in his honor and announcing the creation of the Tim Rosefort Distinguished Writers Award. And it was sadly just a year later. Tim lost his brief battle with Alzheimer's, but his legacy certainly lives on and this week we remember rosie and all he did for this game he loved so much but this year's recipient of the tim rosefort distinguished writer award is craig dolch craig's close friendship with rosie spanned nearly 40 years craig spent 26 years working for various palm beach newspapers he's written more stories than most of us have ever read in places like the new york times sports illustrated golf digest golf world and golf week and has been a veteran of appearing on Golf Channel shows through his long, distinguished career. Craig joins us now from Palm Beach Gardens. Craig, I know this award's got to mean a lot to you. You knew Tim Rosefort better than almost anyone. Where did that relationship actually start? Well, it's pretty interesting in that it happened uh, when I ran into first ran into Tim was early 1981. I was moving down to Tampa and the place I was moving in, Tim happened to be the guy moving out. So I didn't really think much of it until late in 82 when I came down here to West Palm Beach and started working for the Evening Times. And I was covering the senior PGA championship. And I want to say it's maybe about a couple hundred yards from here. We're watching on the 18th hole. I look over and I can recognize Tim. Back then, he still had hair, and uh, it was one of those things that we just got to know each other. Remember from the uh, previous year? That was the year Don January was the champion of the tournament. But I'll tell you what, I felt like I was one of the big winners that day to be able to meet Tim and then have a 40-year relationship with him. 
Craig, I remember talking with Rosie, and he was showing me pictures of what he looked like when he was in Tampa. He had that big beard, had the hair then, still had that linebacker physique from when he had played college football. How did your guys' relationship evolve over the years as you were both had that Florida footprint and then you covered the game uh, in different paths over the decades? Well, Tim, it was three years older than me, so I kind of looked at him as the older brother I never had. And when I came down here, I was very green. I didn't know much about golf. And Tim really kind of took me under my wing. He taught me how to, how to learn about the game, to, to cover it, to uh, the things that he really stressed was, you know, to report to talk to many people as you can to uh, that's where you really get your you know the, the, the best sources you don't just talk to one person other things he taught was to be accountable uh, you're going to have to uh, develop relationships with people and if you don't you know it's our job sometimes to say some things you don't want to say and if you do that fine but you need to talk to that person as soon as you can to make sure if there's any issues with what you said be accountable do what you need to do to make sure you continue that relationship and I was very fortunate to have a front row seat to one of the greatest legends in our game I mean as you asked earlier about what it means to me to be able to have an award uh, receive an award named after your best friend I don't think many people ever get that opportunity and it's just been an amazing experience he was your best friend Craig but you guys were also competitive as well was there ever any time where you took a little bit of pleasure in finally managing to one-up Tim Rosefort and breaking some news because there weren't that many folks who got to do that over the years. <laughs> no, you weren't. And I tell you, I got happy just when he would call me for a phone number because uh, that, that tally was probably about a thousand for Tim and maybe five or six for me because Tim had a Rolodex that was, uh, uh, you know, unheard of and, and that's something he did because of the way he worked the relationships he he built with people but uh, you know we, we for the most part we did work together uh, but there was always this competitive I mean just playing golf we'd play golf we'd you know do other sorts of activities but uh, with, with Tim he always kept it congenial there was never any type of uh, you know animosity or you know we of course we'd gloat if we were able to break something but uh, Tim was a competitor and he made everybody a lot better journalist being around him Golf media looks very different these days than it did, certainly when you and Tim were on the way up. Craig, what do you think is the best lesson anyone who wants to be in this business now or in the future should take from the example of Tim Rosefort? Well, as I mentioned, the best thing is just to be out there, to report, to make the extra phone calls, to walk out to the practice tee and talk to some more players to make sure that you have a true picture of the story. Uh, the thing about Tim is he really knew what the best thing was to do, you know, in terms of, of, of being fair, being responsible. And uh, I just, like I said, I just couldn't imagine having a better mentor than Tim Rosefort. Craig, you've been covering this game going on four-plus decades now. What do you make of the current landscape in the men's professional game? Well, that's the one thing, you know, with Tim, we, we, I spent a lot of time with him the last couple years uh, before his passing. And, you know, he really, he knew a little bit about the live. He really didn't understand what was going on. And I would just love to know what he has to say about what's happened to the game of golf. Uh, Tim was a traditionalist. I'm sure he would wish there'd be a way we could come to some sort of conclusion and be able to have the best players playing again. But, uh, I, you know, that's the thing I always wonder. And, you know, being able to have both of Tim's phone numbers, because he didn't just have one phone. He had two uh, to be able to, to pick up the phone and talk to him about stories about how to approach things is something I, I really miss. And I was fortunate to be able to, to be able to make those phone calls for a long time.
definitely uh, miss him too. And whenever I was down in Palm Beach, he'd say, Georgie, just hit me up. Hit up Rosie. If you ever need anything down here, this is my city. Just let me know. Craig, congrats on the award. Uh, amazing honor to receive. Thank you, George. Thank you, Eamon. So as we go on to break, we continue to remember our dear friend, Tim Rosefort, had such a big impact in the professional game at Golf Channel and especially in South Florida as well during his time covering this great sport.